If you would today, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And we'll be looking at verses 11 and 12 today. Ephesians 3, 11 and 12. And as you get there, you know, what would you do if you had access to the President of the United States of America? And when I say that, I mean full access. You could call him up at any time. Uh, when you picked up your cell phone and dialed the number, it would ring in his bedroom and he would wake up and he would answer your call, whatever time of the day it was, whatever he was doing, whatever crisis was unfolding, you had access to approach him. Would you try and sway him? Uh, sway his decisions? Would you give him uh, policy uh, decisions and say, okay, president, here's what you need to do today. Uh, would you try and do that for the benefit of the most people? Would you say, listen, this is this is something you need to know that is happening in, in this country. And so this is what you need to do to help correct that and to see that. Use your powers, use your office for the good of the people of this country. Or would you be more selfish and say, hey, you know, listen, I just got a speeding ticket. Can you do something about that? Can you give me a, a presidential pardon about this issue? Uh, could you give me some stock tips? Do you know, you know, which which companies you're going to bring regulatory action against so I can make sure I sell all my stock in them? What would you do with that access? Now, think about this. What if you had access to someone of more consequence and someone more important than the president of the United States of America? What if the person that you could approach could do anything that he declared his intent to do? Because though the president of the U.S. has quite some power, he is not all powerful. And indeed, a lot of what he, uh, in our system of government, right, a lot of what he can do is limited, naturally so, right? By, by the structure of the Constitution, he has a limited amount of powers, he cannot do the things that Congress alone can do, and he cannot do the things that the uh, courts can do. So what if you had access to a person who not only uh, could do anything he wanted to do and willed to do, but he delighted in hearing from you to do those things? Well, today as we come to our passage, Paul writes to us about the bold access we have in Christ. And indeed, I want us to see in our passage that in Christ, in Christ, God's purpose is revealed in creation and in his church. God's purpose is revealed in creation and in his church in Christ. So let us read out of the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And this is God's word. 
Chapter 3 begins with a thought, right? We, we discussed that when we look, first looked at verse 1. Chapter 3 begins with a thought that isn't complete until the next verse, verse 13. And in between, Paul has been writing about his, um, his role in the proclamation of the mystery of Christ. That mystery being that Gentiles are not less than in the kingdom of God, but equals with God's chosen people, Israel. So the, the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer are the same in everything, uh, all the benefits, all the blessings that come with being in Christ. Gentiles uh, are being brought into the kingdom of God. This is the mystery that Paul was to go and preach. And this being brought in, right, it's, it's not, again, it's not a less than, but we actually see it described as an adoption, right? Being made just as a son or daughter. And the whole cosmos is witness to this reality, to the unpacking of this mystery. And that's what we ended with in verse 10 last week, last time, right? So that the through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the witness of the church isn't just on earth, but also in heaven to the angels. And so we come to our passage today and on, on to that glorious plan of God. And so let's see first an eternal purpose, an eternal purpose in verse 11. And the ESV begins this, uh, this being Ephesians 3.10, right? This being the mystery that is being revealed to the cosmos through the church. Uh, this being the manifold wisdom of God being made known through the church. This was according to the eternal purpose which he purposed. And I want us to note, and I go back to this maybe too often, but maybe it's good for us to hear this often, is that God's plan and God's purpose was not an audible. He, wasn't, he didn't just cry out and say, oh, you know what, last, change, last minute change of plans, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm changing, I'm doing something different here. Just kidding about everything I said before. We're going to go this direction now. God has always intended for the church to display his wisdom. This is his eternal purpose and that word eternal is the word we see elsewhere it's it's often used in ephesians here thus far we've seen it a bunch of times uh, we might see it uh, translated as ages so this was the purpose of god from ages and this is the idea that before the foundation of the world god's plan was for the church why is this important because sometimes I think if we just read through the story of the scripture, if we start in Genesis and we go through to the book of Revelation, we can get this idea that along the way, God kind of tries one thing. It doesn't really work out. So he tries something different and that doesn't really work out. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll try this. Maybe this time this will work out. Surely at some point, God will have one good plan that will work out. And that's heresy, by the way. God is all wise. 
He is all-knowing, and he is all-powerful. And what have these to do with the church? What, what, what do these have to do with you and I here today? What does this have to do with Redeeming Grace Fellowship? Well, first, what he does is good and best. He is wisdom. He is all wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.25 tells us, 1 Corinthians 1.25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Notice what Paul writes there, the foolishness of God. If we could say that there is some kind of foolishness in God, the foolishness of God is wiser than all the wisdom of men. What this means for us is that in every plan and purpose of God, there is more wisdom in it than all the wisdom that we could put together. God's covenant with Abraham, his leading his people into Egypt, the slavery of his people in Egypt, and the calling out of his people from uh, Egypt in the Exodus, and every judge, prophet, king, and rebellion falls within the wisdom of God. If you read through the story of the first king of Israel, King Saul, uh, we could affectionately call him a knucklehead. Uh, we might call him worse things. But God chose King Saul. And we have to ask, did God make a mistake in choosing King Saul? God chose King Saul in all wisdom. Every purpose of God was carried out in wisdom. And the long and short of it is, Though in our pride we often think differently, we could not improve upon God's plan. It is wisdom itself. It is his eternal purpose to declare the wonder of his wisdom through Christ's church. So the first thing we have to understand is that in the purpose and the plans of God, he is wisdom. And he makes them in all wisdom. The second thing is, is he is all-knowing. He is not surprised by anything. There is nothing that happens on this earth that falls outside of the foreknowledge of God. Nothing happens without his consent and knowledge. David gets this right in Psalm 139. Look at Psalm 139. And in particular, I just want us to look at verses 1 through 4, but you could go through and read the whole entirety of the psalm. You would see... This idea carried throughout it, I think. But Psalm 139, starting in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Isn't that interesting there? What, what David's, David writes, what David sings, he says, before I even speak, you know what I'm going to say. God knows the ways of David and nothing is hidden from his sight. Interestingly, in John's gospel, 
we get the same idea about Jesus in John 2, verses 24 and 25. John 2, 24 and 25. The Apostle John writes, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus did not have to be instructed on the nature of other people. He knew it. Right? That's one of the things we do with our children, is we teach them how to interact with other people. And we want them to understand that sometimes what people tell them is a lie, right? And they can't trust them. We, we know that to be the case. And we, we instruct our children in those ways to protect them, right? Because there are really evil people out there who will lie to a child in order to get from them what they should not get, right? So, so we protect our children this way. Jesus didn't need that. Mary and Joseph didn't have to teach Jesus about what was in man. He knew it all together. And if we track through the Gospels, by the way, we can see what evidence of this, right? We track through the Gospels. What do we see Jesus doing? Responding to questions that weren't asked but thought. Responding to situations, right? There's hush whispers in the back of the room and Jesus is is dealing with those questions, dealing with those answers. He's calling them out. He's bringing it to light. Jesus knows all things. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 4.13, this is the second part of the, the probably our, the more well-known verse, right? The word of God is like a two-edged sword. But Hebrews 4.13 tells us, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows you more intimately than your spouse does. God knows you most intimately. He knows you in ways in which no other person does or can. Who you are and what you do is not hidden from the eyes of God. He knows all things, and it is to him who knows all things to which we must give an account. Friend, consider this about God. There are many pretenders in the Christian faith. There are many who profess to follow Christ, but their heart is far from him. There are many who claim Christ but the reality of their lives, how they speak, what they do, and what they think proves otherwise. You may make a very good showing of being a Christian. It's easy enough to do, right? Let me say that again because I don't think we get it. It's easy to show up and pretend to be a Christian. It's easy to do that when we gather here together on a Sunday, right? It's easy to do that. All we have to do is maybe look serious enough, smile at the right parts, sing the right songs, and boom, we're done. And then we can go on and live the rest of our lives. How many times do we hear stories of pastors or of church members who, from outward perspective, seen as the model of a Christian? And then you realize at home they're beating their wife 
or they're going off and doing other things. Uh, just this week, I saw a, a post about how there was a pastor who uh, was dressing up, uh, cross-dressing and dressing up as a trans person and posting all this stuff. And, and he said, you know, that's my private life. It doesn't matter. Uh, you know, that's not my public life. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I'm a pastor and I do this. It doesn't matter that I'm in uh, politics and I do this. Uh, this is just who I am in the privacy of my home. And who cares if I post things occasionally on social media about it? Right? From outward perspective, might be fine. Jesus has something to say about that too, doesn't he, when he talks to the Pharisees. Outside the tomb can look very pretty, but inside it's full of dead man's bones. Right? So, so it can be easy to make a good showing of a Christian, but in the quiet of your house, in the darkness of your room, God knows you. He knows that part of you. And even if nobody else knows about it, God knows about it. You cannot hide from him what you hide from others. You are exposed before him. That's what Hebrews tells us, right? You, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed. In the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And the reality is this, friend. Look at Ephesians 2. 1 through 5, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Call out to God in faith, asking him for the forgiveness of your sins. Because outside of faith in Christ, outside of God's grace, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walk. Trust in Christ and ask him for the forgiveness of your pretensions and pretending to be a Christian. God knows all things. And so that means he's not surprised by us or by our sin. He is not surprised or shocked by the state of the American church. Israel may have been caught off guard when Hamas attacked them several weeks ago. God was not. God knows all things. And the third important thing we have to think about, so he's all-wise, he's all-knowing, and he is all-powerful. What he wills, he accomplishes. What does this have to do with Ephesians, right? Look at this. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Note the end of this verse, right? God accomplished everything of his plan in Christ. He accomplished it. He carried it out. What he purposed, he completed. And this is what God does. All that he does, all that he speaks, he does. He plans and realizes those plans. Memorize this verse from Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. 
I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. The wise plans of God are brought to completion by the hand of God. And our ways are not so, right? There, there are many places we could look at in the scriptures to find this to be true. We could look at James 4, right? Where it says, what is your life? You don't know what your life is going to be like. You can set out tomorrow with all grandiose plans and those plans could blow up right in front of you because what is your life? You could be driving home this afternoon and have a heart attack and die. You could be driving home and someone crosses the line and you're dead instantly. So who cares what your plans are for tomorrow? What is your life? God is not so. Or we could look at many of the Proverbs which say many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God's eternal purpose to declare his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in heavens uh, in the heavens were was accomplished in Christ Jesus. It all always comes back to our Lord Jesus. It is in him that the plans of God find their fruition. And why should it not be so? Right? Why should God not celebrate, delight, and give every good and perfect gift to his only begotten son? And here's the reality for us, brothers and sisters in Christ. Why should God not celebrate, delight, and give every good and perfect gift to us? Let's consider that next in verse 12, a confident access. Verse 12, a confident access. And this is where we really do have to ask some serious questions. Do you believe that God delights to hear from you? Do you think that the Father is grudging in loving you? Do you believe that he hesitates to save you? And why these questions? Well, because I believe it is easy for us to comprehend the, the love that God the Father has for God the Son. I think that's easy and natural for us to understand. Even if we had really terrible earthly fathers or missing earthly fathers, we can kind of understand God the Father, God the Son. Yeah, they have to love each other. They really do love each other. And we can kind of put that out there as an esoteric notion that, you know, that's a point of theology we can hang our hat on kind of thing. We would expect to find that the eternal purpose of God is for the glory and good of his only begotten. But God's purpose in Christ leads us to what this verse says here. And what does it say? Well, first, in whom? And we always ask the question, in whom, in whom, right? Who are we referring to? Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus. The God-man who is the Messiah who fulfills the prophecy and he who is our Lord, the exalted ruler, right? The, the one to whom 
obedience must be given. In whom, in Christ Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence, or confident access, as some translations render it. What does this mean for us? Right? When we talk about boldness, uh, one commentator kind of puts it this way, that it's, it's like freedom of speech. It's the ability, the right to say whatever we want to say. It's frankness. Now, being in America, we might expect that we have a right to say whatever we want to say, right? We, we expect freedom of speech. But we also understand that there are good right limits to, uh, to that freedom of speech, right? We cannot run around saying whatever we want without experiencing some consequences necessarily. And we know that there's not always legal recourse against what we say, but there may be societal recourse. For instance, again, go back to the, uh, the war between Israel and Hamas. One of the consequences that many found out is that if you use a public platform to speak about your opinion about this war and the parties in it, you may lose your job. You may be ousted from positions of prominence and power because you've said the wrong thing. You've not said something illegal. You've exercised your, your right to free speech. But don't think that that means that there aren't any consequences to it, right? That there are immediate consequences sometimes. There are limits to free speech. But when we consider our boldness and access to God, there is freedom. There is frankness that we can have with God. Now, two things need to be balanced here. Reverence and honesty. Reverence and honesty. So reverence and frankness. And what do I mean by these things? First, reverence is considering who it is we are before. When you pray, brothers and sisters, you are not approaching buddy pal. Right? You're not approaching old one-eyed Jimmy that you can just kind of jostle around with, right? You are communicating with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You are communicating with the Royal Emperor Supreme. Now, I know that there are people who like to take those kinds of titles for themselves here on this earth. But there is only one sovereign Lord. There is only one sovereign Lord. Well, would we remember the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. And have you ever considered that this is the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah? If you know it right, Isaiah has a vision of God and his glory. And we'll get to what he says, but this is the sixth chapter. He's been speaking on behalf of God to his people. And what does he say when he comes before the holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts? Isaiah 6, 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He calls himself a man of unclean lips. He's been speaking on behalf of God. He says, in comparison to the thrice holy God, to the holiest there ever is, or was or will be, he is, Isaiah is, 
profane, most common. He is unholy before the Holy One. We ought remember in our prayers fear before God. We ought revere him. Now, does this mean that we, when I say this, right, does this mean that we subscribe to a certain form of our prayers, that we have to use certain words in our prayers? Do we have to come before God and say something like, O thou greatest God of all creationists, we come to thee as humbleth men, thee our God, thy, thy, thee, thee, thou, right? Something like that. Like we're reciting a passage out of the King James Version, or maybe that we're speaking like we're in one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Like, is that the language we should adopt when we come before God? Is that what makes reverent language? No. And I'll treat carefully here and say, I think sometimes I, people are, are genuine in their use of that language. Uh, it's, it's odd for us because that's not how they, we speak. And it's probably not how they speak in, in the normal course of their day. And so it's, it, it probably is more pretentious than it is actual. It doesn't make it reverent to have that kind of language. So what does reverence mean? If it's not our words that we use, if it's not certain words we use and certain words we don't use, although there are certain words we don't use, right? Again, we don't come before God and say, uh, hey, buddy, how are you doing today? Just checking in. What makes reverence in our prayers is our hearts. If we think we'll be heard from any words, we're mistaken. What matters is our heart. What do we believe in here, right, in our heart, that is expressed in our words out here? So we pray with boldness. We pray reverently. We pray with the fear of God. We pray understanding that we come before the King of kings and Lord of lords. We come before a God who could unmake us, right? Look at how holy our God is. We could look at some of the examples in the scripture. When the man reaches up to study the ark because he thinks that the dirt is more profane than he is, and God strikes him dead. We could look at how God is holy. Uh, this morning in my Bible reading, uh, it was the story in the book of Numbers where uh, Moses was supposed to speak to the rock, and instead he struck the rock. And God says to him, because you did not keep my name holy before the people, you're not going to enter into the promised land. Because you've erred in this one ma manner. Understand that the judgment of God there could have been a lot worse. We see that in the Exodus, in the wilderness wanderings, how the people are profane and God judges them harshly and immediately. That's a light sentence. So we pray with reverence, we pray understanding who it is we come before, and, but we also pray with honesty. And what do I mean by this? Go back to the Psalms. The Psalms are, are replete with examples for us. In Psalm 88, and again, we could look at a larger chunk of this Psalm, but I just want us to look at verses 13 through 18, so 13 through the end of it. Psalm 88, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Listen to the honesty. Listen here to the honesty 
of the psalmist. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Period. End of the psalm. It's a real hallmark psalm, right? Write that on a uh, card you send to someone the next time, right? But, but what's going on here? The psalmist is declaring honestly before God. He says, I, I feel like I'm done, uh, done away. God, why have you visited your wrath upon me? This psalm does not shy away from the fullness of feelings. Have you ever felt rejected by God? Have you gone to him in prayer and asked him, God, why have you made yourself scarce in the day of my trouble? Honesty. right? Honesty of what it is you're actually feeling before God. I know that I, I confess to my shame that I've had to stop in the middle of prayer sometimes and confess about my prayer because it wasn't honest. I was coming to God with pretensions. It wasn't truthful. And here's this me stupid, right? God knows. And brothers and sisters, God knows what is going on in your heart. So approaching him in pretense, approaching him and saying, oh, everything's fine when it's not really fine. God knows that's not honest. That's not truthful. How could you hide anything from him? Elsewhere, the psalmist writes in Psalm 145, verse 18, 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. We could add there in genuineness, in honesty. And here's the reality of what we have in Christ Jesus. Right? Let's not forget what we're talking about. The honest, the, the reality of what we have in Christ Jesus is bold access, confident access. We are invited into the throne room of God to find the grace and mercy we need. Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the ground, by the way, the basis for that the author of Hebrew argues, is Jesus, right? Jesus is our great high priest. He was tempted in every way that we were yet without sin. He knows what weakness is and is able to sympathize with us. And so when he stands beside God's throne and beckons us to come before the throne, he does not do one with his nose up. And say, ah, come on. I knew you'd be back. Here you are again. Come on, you're like a lost little puppy. Get in here. But he stands beckoning and say, Come, come.
Come, find grace. Receive mercy. Come. Beloved, there are so many places that we could go in the scriptures to help our understanding of this, our God. Right, this is what we've been studying on Tuesday nights in the men's Bible study when we talk about Christ and his relation to us and our sin. All right, so reverence does not mean we hide the truth. When we go back, when we talk about the fear of God when we pray, it doesn't mean we hide the truth of what we mean to say before him. It means we come before him with honesty. For let us not forget what we have considered in the last verse. God knows us, right? We stand naked and exposed before him. He's not fooled by a formalism or rote prayers. But in Christ Jesus, we have boldness and confidence to come before God the Father. Now, the last portion of this verse in Ephesians and in verse 12, there's a real question of interpretation. And the question of interpretation is actually highlighted by your by different translations. So depending on the translation that you have, you may have already said, oh, that sounds very different. What is the basis for our confident access? What is the basis for our confident access? Well, the ESV determines that the word faith here applies to us. And so if we, the, again, the ESV translation reads, uh, we have, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith, our faith in him. The ESV determines that we understand that our freedom of speech before God is through our faith. The King James Version suggests what the NET actually spells out, and it's translated, our confident access is by way of Christ's faithfulness. Christ's faithfulness. So clearly scholars are divided in their opinions about how this access to God arises. Does this access to God arise because of our faith in Christ, or is it because of Christ's faithfulness that we can approach God? And if we examine each of those options, then even as I said them, you might have thought, well, they're both true. (laughs) They're both true. We can only have confidence before God because of Christ Jesus. Our boast is in Christ alone. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. By the way, that's a Reformation Day. little fun bit there for you too, right? The solas. If we have not faith, so right, let's talk about our faith. If we don't have faith, we don't have confident access. And certainly any boldness we might have without faith is just bombast. It's bravado, right? It's fake. It's a veneer. If we consider the other option, if we consider Christ's faithfulness, we'll have to say a hearty amen to that reality as well, right? Without Christ's faithfulness, we don't have a perfect sacrifice. We don't have a great high priest who can uh, beckon us to come before the throne of grace. Instead, we have a great high priest who's just like all the other high priests who has to offer a sacrifice of sins for his own sins first and then for all the others. We don't have a once-for-all atoning sacrifice. And so there's always the question. And understand this, right? If you go through and you read the book of Leviticus, and that's going to be a a bold statement to claim, right? Read the book of Leviticus. Study it. 
And then what I want you to do is think about in your day-to-day life, how many times you probably would have had to stop everything that you're doing to go take a sacrifice to God in order, in order to atone for your sins. I don't know that we would have much time for anything else. Maybe on a good day. But on a bad day, we might as well not even leave the temple complex. I think by the way, uh, Martin Luther understood something of that before he, he was converted, before he was born again. Because he spent, he, want, he basically wanted to spend his whole life in the confessional. Because what sin arose in him? So much so to the consternation of the other monks, right? They said, Martin, go out and do some real big sin and then come back, right? They, they were tired of him. All right, so if, if we have a high priest who's just like all the other earthly high priests, then we have to be concerned. Am I right with God? Or do, not, or do I need to run and get a lamb and sacrifice it? Or do I need to run and get some pigeons and offer them a sacrifice? Without Christ's faithfulness, what do we have? What we always had before. And we're left unsure. So here in our passage, though, which should we consider? Is it our faith or is it Christ's faithfulness? I'd say either or both. And we probably shouldn't quibble about Uh, two things which are equally true. But rather let us wonder and worship that Christ Jesus our Lord opens up to us free access to the throne of God to find grace and receive mercy. So to go back to the questions I asked at the beginning of this verse when we began to unpack it, do you believe, Christian, that God delights to hear from you? Do you think that the Father is grudging and is loving of you? Do you believe that he hesitates to save you? Consider that God completes his eternal purpose in Christ and that it is in Christ alone that we have access to God. And consider, too, what else we have read in this book so far. Consider chapter 1, for instance, Ephesians 1.5. We are told that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Consider chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him. Listen to this. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Or consider this own, our, our, the chapter we're in now, verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In Christ, God's purpose is realized in creation and in his church. It's all through Christ. Christ accomplishes the Father's will. And in this, 
he proclaims the wisdom of God to all creation through his church, through his body. And we who are in the body of Christ then have access to God. So what should we make of these things? Well, first, that God is all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing, and the plans he makes from eternity past will come to fruition. God's wisdom will be known. He has made and realized an eternal purpose in Christ. Uh, so one of the things that, that tells us, right, is when we look ahead to the future and as we're uncertain about what is going to transpire. By the way, I don't know about you, but I've been uncertain about the future of what uh, beholds this country. Uh, we have much to pray for because I could very easily see uh, rebellion, insurrection, cessation of everything that we know as normal in our country and have known for 200 years. And perhaps we're always on that line. And perhaps every generation says that about their time. But what God has promised will come to pass. Here's what I know will happen. God will visit judgments upon this earth. And those who are outside of Christ will die and enter into hell. And those who are in Christ will be raised to newness of life. Even as we are uh, so already, as evidenced by baptism, right? We're buried with him in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life. God's going to accomplish all that. God in his wisdom is going to do that. And we have, we have nothing to fear of man and what is ahead. But we do have everything to fear of God, right? For us today, we know that the saints will be glorified. In Christ, the saints, his people, his body, you, if you are in Christ, have boldness, freedom, and coming and going before the King of kings and Lord of lords. You can approach the throne of grace and know that whatever you ask, you will have. We could go in there about the, the, the caveat to that, right? The understanding of that. Uh, the book of James gives us that too, right? You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask amiss. So let's understand that. But God has purposed glory for you, beloved. This is what he's purposed for his only begotten son, and he invites his adopted children to share in his grace. Go to Romans 8. Read it this afternoon. We are what? Co-heirs with Christ. Do you ever stop and just marvel at that? One, why would Christ share anything? He has right to everything. But two, why would God do such a kindness to dust? He has purposed glory, right? Ephesians 2, he seated us with him in the heavenly places. We share in the blessings of the Son. This is wondrous and wonderful news, right? What kindness and love God has shown to a rebellious people. Ought we not praise him in all things? And one of the realities that flows from this, right, is we can have confidence when we go to him and, and approach him in prayer. We approach him, yes, with reverence, but we also approach him in honesty, with respect. We draw near to him, 
in a way that is not possible outside of Christ's work. Do you understand that? Outside of Christ's work, we have no confidence to come before the King of Kings. Indeed, we could not. What did God say about his glory to Moses? Moses, you can't look, man can't look on my glory and live. You would be undone. Even as we see that in the vision of Isaiah, right? Woe is me, I am undone, I am lost. And he didn't even see the fullness of the glory of God there. The robe of God's, uh, the train of God's robe filled the temple. He probably couldn't even really see. There was smoke rising from the incense and the sacrifices. So it was glory obscured, and yet he still shouted out, cried out, Woe is me. But you, beloved, can stand before God as one holy, blameless, and above reproach. And you will, not might, you will, if you're in Christ, see the glory of God. You will live in the light of it for all eternity. That's the kind of access we have, beloved. Praise God for that. So what do you need from God? Go to him and ask. Go to him and ask. And Jesus says, if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more the Holy Heavenly Father will give to his children. And I love the addendum that Luke adds to that. Uh, you know, fleshing out what Jesus says there, saying what Jesus says, right? Writing out the fullness of that statement. Even the Holy Spirit. Even the Holy Spirit. A second thing to consider is that access to God is only through faith in Christ and through Christ's faithfulness. And this means that not all who call Him Lord, not all who profess with their lips, but whose heart is far from Him, will be recipients of his blessings. This promise of access is only for God's people. And if you're not in Christ, if you don't believe in him truly, don't be surprised when on the day of judgment, you are cast forever from his good presence. There is none who can stand and give defense for himself before the holy, righteous judge. And you, friends, stand condemned because of your sin, because of all the evil that you think and say and do, no matter how little evil you think it is, it is a blot, a stain upon your soul that God cannot abide with. God has an eternal purpose for all those who are outside of Christ. And it is most wise, most good. It is hell. And he will accomplish all his will. But as you yet breathe, as you draw breath, if you turn from your sin and turn to Christ Jesus, if you call out to him in faith, believing that he is who he says he is and he has done what he says he has done, you can be saved. If you turn from your sin and unto Christ, you can have bold access to God. You can stand before him and know his mercy and grace and love now and for all eternity. So confess. That means tell the truth of your sin. and Call out to God, pleading for his forgiveness and mercy. Trust in Jesus. 
believe in him and be saved. And he is faithful to accomplish what he has promised. And he promises that all who come to him will no wise be cast out. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, what a thing it is that we can come before you. God, that we can make known to you our requests. That we can entreat you, O Lord God. And that you do not cast us out. You do not cast us away. You do not ignore us. You do not set us aside. You do not laugh in derision. But Father, you hear from us, your children. And you act. What a wonder it is. Oh, what a wonder it is, Lord, our God. Father, we pray. We pray for those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. Father, that you would have mercy upon them and you would let them see the truth of their sin, the truth of who they are before you. And Lord, that they would see and behold the beauty of Jesus. Father, we pray for this community around us that is dead in the sins and trespasses in which they walk, that they follow the course of this world, they follow the prince of the power of the air, they follow demons and do not know it. God, we pray for those in our community who profess Christ but do not know him. Father, who will say on that day, Lord, Lord, and Christ will say, depart. Father, we pray that you would have mercy upon them and that you would save them, Lord God. God, give us boldness of speech to proclaim the truth of Christ to them. Father, let us not, uh, let us not give them a salve that hides the festering wound, but Lord, help us to give the balm of Gilead. Help us, uh, Lord, to show them Christ, to preach Christ. They may not perish forever. Father, we pray for our own sakes here today. We have many needs. Father, we have needs of, of, of soul and spirit. We have needs of body. Father, we need wisdom to know what it is we ought to do. We need your grace and we need to receive mercy. But Father, be near to us, we pray. Grant unto us that which we need. And we believe, Lord, what your word says. That you have given us everything necessary for life and godliness. Oh, Lord, help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.